My name's Josh, if you haven't met me, me before, I'm actually the uh, youth pastor at Ignite. And um, yeah, youth is awesome. I think someone just made some woohoo noises. Uh, if you think youth is really awesome, you should join us. So um, that would be even more awesome. Um, if you do have a passion to serve the young people of this church, whether it's in children's ministry or in youth group, um, I'd love to have a chat to you, but we would also love you to do the 101 co- course if you're new, and then of course there's another course, um, I think it's called 201, where we talk about your giftings and where you would like to be used for the kingdom of God. Uh, but youth's been awesome. Um, we've been going through the life of Jesus. We, what did we cover so far? We looked at Jesus' baptism, and I explained to the kids that baptism is like dunking a cookie under milk. It fully submerges. Um, Let's not go there this morning. This isn't on baptism. Anyways, it's been wonderful looking at the the life of Jesus, and we're going to do that this morning as well. But before we begin uh, the sermon, I've got some questions behind me. Um, As you would know, we sometimes get into small groups as a church and discuss various topics. So this morning's questions are, when do you feel most tempted to do evil? How do you overcome temptations? So in other words, you know, do you pray? Do you read your Bible? Do you go to friends? Like, in what way do you find helpful to overcome temptations? And the third question is, what does it matter that Jesus lived a sinless life and never yielded to temptation? So for the next maybe five minutes or so, let's just get into small groups of maybe no more than five or six. Um, you can turn in your chairs to one another, and let's just have a discussion about this before the sermon starts. Thanks. I'm feeling a bit rusty this morning when it comes to public speaking. I don't know why, but it doesn't really bother me because the Word of God is powerful. And um, it's not about how well I can stand up before you and eloquently speak. It's about the Lord Jesus doing His work among His people. So I'm just going to open in prayer. Father in heaven, we, um, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that You came into the world and lived a sinless life and went to the cross for our sin to reconcile us to God. And we thank you that you were raised from the dead and you live forevermore and all authority has been given to you, Lord Jesus, in heaven and on earth. And we praise your mighty name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus. So when Jesus was tempted by Satan, um, it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I'll be primarily staying in Matthew's account, so Matthew chapter 4. So I'll just read it to you all the way through once. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So I'm going to begin from the start of this story and we're going to set the scene and move forward from there. So 
The first verse in Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. Jesus, this is, this is focusing on Jesus' humanity, like he actually experienced real hunger in this instance. Um, but before we begin to consider this scene, we need to think about the events that were leading up to this. Uh, now, my youth kids could probably answer this, but uh, we've been going through, we went through the water baptism of Jesus, and this is actually the very next scene. So we went through the ministry of John the Baptist. John the Baptist came and preached a baptism of repentance, that people should repent of their sin, that they should acknowledge that they're guilty before God, and that that picture of baptism is that going under, like putting to death that old life and coming out, changing our direction and heading in a new direction, heading towards God, wanting to live a life that pleases God. So we leave our old life behind and we rise out of the water cleansed and on a new path heading towards God. Now Jesus came to John and sought baptism, but you'll remember um, John responded to Jesus, I should be baptized by you and are you coming to me? And he said, I'm not even worthy to untie your, your sandals. And so John realized that Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance. Nevertheless, Jesus insisted and John baptized the Lord Jesus. And then we know the story that the, that the sky parted and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And a voice spoke to him from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we know that that was God the Father putting his stamp of approval on Jesus the Son. Now Jesus had just been filled with the Holy Spirit in the waters of baptism and the first thing the Spirit of God does is lead him into a wilderness-like experience. Rather than going straight into healings and rather than going straight off to preaching, the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Now, uh, Jesus during this time would have been physically and emotionally at his weakest. That's why one of the questions that I had behind us was, um, you know, when do you feel most tempted to do evil? Because I don't know about you, but we talk about being hangry like when I'm hungry and I'm angry. Um, we talk about uh, being tired and grumpy and scenes like that. Well, Jesus experienced all of those things in his humanity. He was hungry, he was tired, and he was alone. Now, sometimes we give people the wrong impression about the Christian life. We, we, we get to this impression that if you become a Christian, you know, God's going to give you wealth, he's going to give you health, he's going to give you everything you desire. And we, we forget to, to tell people that there's often times of trials and testings. Yes, there's joy. Yes, there's strength. Yes, there's favor with others. But it's not without its trials. And the Lord Jesus modeled an example of that kind of trials and the self-denial it takes to get through it. But thank God, even in the most harshest of temptations and suffering, the Word of God promises us that His grace is sufficient for us, that His strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. And that's good news for us. So you might be in a wilderness experience this morning yourselves, but the Spirit of God can be with you so that you're not alone. You see, if you've been forgiven by God this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, as we heard in communion, if you've been forgiven of your sins, the Spirit of God now abides in you. Your body has become the temple of the Holy Spirit, and He promised to abide with us forever. Um, now, when the Apostle Paul ended his, um, his letter to the Corinthians the second time, so 2 Corinthians, he said to them the final farewell, may the grace of the Lord Jesus, that's his strength, and the love of God, 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. See, you don't need to feel alone in your trials. We have the strength of the Lord Jesus. We have the love of God and we have the communion or fellowship with the Holy Spirit here on earth. You might quench him, you might grieve him by, you know, turning away from him, um, by doing sinful acts, but he will never leave you nor forsake you. There was a, a famous Christian evangelist about 100 years ago by the name of R.A. Torrey. He's um, one of my favorites prior to Billy Graham. And uh, he had a sermon that was entitled The Companionship of the Holy Spirit. You can look it up in your own time, The Companionship of the Holy Spirit by R.A. Torrey. But I'll read you some sections from it. Uh, Torrey wrote, during the, or he spoke at the time, during the absence of our Lord until that glad day that he shall come back again, uh, another person, just as divine as he, just as loving and tender and strong to help, is by my side always. Yes, dwells within my heart every moment to commune with me and to help me in every emergency that can possibly arise. He then goes on to describe a time when he was actually traveling as an evangelist to Australia, and he wasn't from here. I think Tory was either American or from Britain, I'm not sure. You'd have to look it up. But uh, he was away from his family. He was feeling alone. He was feeling like there was no one to talk to. He was on a ship in a storm, and most of the passengers were down below seasick. And he says, As I walked on the deck alone, I got to thinking about my four children, and I was about to get all lonesome when the thought came to me of the Holy Spirit by my side, and that as I walked up and down the deck in the night, in the storm, he took every step with me, and all my loneliness was gone. Now, you might have lost a spouse. I don't want to make little of this. You might have lost a family member that was really dear to you. Or you might be in a season where you're bedridden or you're away from people. Maybe the reason you're online right now is because you're suffering with something at home. And you might feel alone. But I want to tell you that the Holy Spirit is right there with you now. Even though there might not be a person physically present with you, you can have communion with God through the Holy Spirit. Now, one question we should ask ourselves first off is how can Jesus fast for 40 days? These are the sorts of questions you get to answer at youth group. It's actually quite fun because the kids think like this. They're like, how is that possible? No one can starve themselves for 40 days. They'd be dead. Now, for, an, for a more natural explanation, my best guess is being a Jew, it was commonplace for him to fast. You see, um, they had a lifestyle of fasting. Unlike us in the West where we have to eat meals within set times, three times a day, otherwise we get hangry. Um, the Lord Jesus would have been used to skipping meals. You see, he didn't have a refrigerator, he didn't have a microwave, and he didn't have fast food. So his body would have been used to seasons of, of lack of nourishment. Plus, as a faithful Jew, he probably would have fasted as well. He would have had times of fasting where he devoted his time and focus to spending time alone with God. Uh, so that's my more physical explanation, but if that's not going to satisfy you and you're still troubled by the idea of 40 days without food... Let's just consider it a miracle. Let's say that God sustained him during that period of time. And let's be real, the majority of Jesus' ministry was one big miracle. I mean, this is the man who walked on water. This is the man who told evil spirits to leave people's bodies, and they obeyed him, and they feared him. That's the Lord Jesus who we serve. But nevertheless, he was vulnerable. He was feeling weak, and that's why Satan took advantage of the situation. Uh, it's interesting, in the life of Jesus... Uh, after this event, it says that he often spent time in the wilderness to pray um, because being a popular figure, he was surrounded by multitudes of people. And so like, for example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, Now in the morning, 
he arose long, a long while before daylight, and he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And I think there's something for us in that as well. If we want to serve God effectively, we need to get alone with God. Sometimes we need to get alone in the wilderness with God, away from social media, away from our phones, away from people, and we need to get alone with our God. Now Satan comes along and tests the Lord Jesus. Satan is described in the Bible as a, uh, a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, have you ever watched any of the David Attenborough sort of uh, Discovery Channel things? You see all these lovely, cute animals in a herd, um, and I've learned I'm going to keep these things PG for the kids. Uh, but anyways, an animal like a lion, a predator, doesn't go after the strongest animal in a flock. You see, he waits until there's a weak one, one that's straggling behind, and then he realizes he has the best chance of taking him out. And this is exactly what Satan did, who's described as a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. In this case, he tried to knock Jesus out of his ministry early on. Because if Jesus wasn't sinless, he couldn't be our sacrifice. He couldn't save the world. We'd all still be condemned. We'd all still be under the judgment of God. So, um, yeah, Satan came after Jesus when he was weak. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Jews would have picked up on this straight away, keeping in mind Matthew's gospel was written primarily to the Jews. Uh, that number 40 would have been very significant in their minds. Now, Jesus was fasting in a desert for 40 days, but we know that the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. And this, this link would have been very clear to the Jews. You see, when Jesus was a, was a child, King Herod tried to have him knocked off early on, and it says that Joseph moved his family, being divinely warned in, a, warned in a dream, he moved his family to Egypt. And then we know the scripture that Matthew quotes, out of Egypt I called my son. And then we have this imagery of Jesus passing through the waters of baptism before entering his ministry, before being filled with the Holy Spirit. And again, this imagery parallels um, the Israelites leaving the place of Egypt, the place of bondage, going through the waters of the Red Sea and being set free from the enemies and moving on to the other side towards the promised land. And now, when Israel was in the desert for 40 years, they were rebellious. They failed God. They failed to live faithfully before God. And hence why they were judged and the majority of them didn't enter the promised land. But unlike the Israelites, unlike unfaithful Israel, we have the Lord Jesus who went through all of these experiences. You see, the Israelites had the pillar of of uh, fire by night and the cloud during the day, the Spirit of God was in the wilderness with the Israelites, and we see the Spirit of God is with Jesus now. But instead of caving to temptation like the Israelites so often did, this Jesus fulfilled the law. He was the true Israel. He was the true Holy One, the one who kept the covenant and was deserving of all the blessings of God. So you see, one of the reasons we preach Christ to you, we say, Find your hope in the Lord Jesus is because if you're connected to Jesus by faith, if you abide in him and receive him as your Lord and Savior, you're receiving the riches deserved to Christ, the blessings deserved to Christ. You will be received by God the Father, just as righteous and just as holy as the Lord Jesus if you're found in him. Now, I tried to explain this to my youth kids by using a, a ping pong ball. It was just the only thing I had on hand. We had a container of many, many ping pong balls. And I took one different colored ping pong ball and I said, this is you, 
And imagine this container is Jesus, and I put the ping pong ball in with all the other balls inside the container, and I screwed the lid on, and I said, you're in Christ. God sees you as righteous because you are in Christ. He fulfilled the law. He was the righteous Israelite. And so this, this sort of imagery comes out in this wilderness experience. He was faithful for those 40 days. Now, I want to look at the first temptation that Satan threw at Jesus. In verse 3, it says, Now, when the tempter came to him, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You see, Satan began his attack by questioning Jesus' character, his identity, and also questioning God's word. He began by saying, If, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you're the Son of God, why don't you prove it? Prove it to yourself. Prove it to me that you're actually God's beloved Son. Now imagine for a second if I threw you a rock, um, which I won't do because some of us are very bad at catching, and to be honest, I'm very bad at throwing. Um, if I threw you a rock and said, hey, prove to me that God loves you, can you just turn that rock into, into bread? You'd be like, that's a pretty silly test. I can't do that. But Jesus doesn't say that. And Satan's not throwing out a silly test. Satan knows full well that Jesus has the authority to command a rock to become bread. Now, we never see this um, specifically in the gospel accounts, but what we do see is a story later on of Jesus feeding 5,000 or over 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish, a supernatural miracle where he multiplies bread and creates a giant smorgasbord so that there's baskets of leftovers. So Jesus had that kind of power, and and, uh, that's what the scene we're, we're facing at the moment. Now, uh, the question we should ask is why, is, why is Satan questioning the identity of Jesus? And why is he specifically questioning if he's the Son of God? This is where context is important. Remember, this is straight after the incident where Jesus was baptized in water and a voice spoke to him from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Satan began his attack by questioning the audible voice that Jesus heard from heaven, confirming his identity. Satan was trying to cast doubts in his mind. Is God's word faithful? You know, can you really trust what the Father says about you if you don't perform a miracle to to back it up? Satan essentially was saying God's word is not enough. And he says that to us continually, day by day. God's word is not sufficient and God's character is not to be relied on. So be warned, he's the deceiver, he's the father of lies. And we're going to get more to that a little bit later on. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you probably didn't get this light from heaven shining on you when you got baptized in water. But what we do have is the word of God, the same word of God, saying that he loves you and that you're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, if you're abiding in Jesus... The Father sees you as perfect, just as Jesus was. The Father lavishes his love on you, just as he lavishes the love on the Lord Jesus. So God loves me, and I'm a child of God, because the word of God says so. And Satan will come, and he'll try to rock that foundation. But we need to be like Jesus and say, no, it is written. You know, it is written that God loved the world and sent his son to die for me. It is written, and we need to put our confidence in God's word. John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. That was how he described the disciples. We have known and believed the love that God has for us. And that love is in the Lord Jesus, is in Christ. 
Now, you may not feel like God loves you. You might be in a a vulnerable state like Jesus is. You might feel all alone. You might feel hungry. You might be weary. You might be struggling with sickness in your body. But those circumstances don't change the unchangeable word of God. That's our foundation. That's our strength. You see, this tactic isn't new by Satan. If you remember back in the Garden of Eden, you remember that Satan came to Eve and uh, Satan said to her, did God really say that you should not eat of any of the trees in the Garden of Eden? And uh, he began by questioning God's word. He began by putting doubt in Eve's mind. And he does that same tactic here with the Lord Jesus. But thankfully, the Lord Jesus overcame through the word of God, through confidence in the faithfulness of God. And that, that verse, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that's from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. So he's quoting Deuteronomy there. Now, just as, our, just as bread, physical bread, gives our body strength and nourishment, God's word nourishes the believer. It nourishes our spiritual man and strengthens up us. You see, I find a lot of Christians really struggle uh, with faith. They, you know, they go through whole, whole weeks and whole seasons where they're feeling weak. And it's partly just to the fact you haven't been feeding. You haven't been feeding on his faithfulness. You haven't been feeding on the Word of God and the promises of God. See, the Word of God says that faith comes by hearing and by hearing the Word of God. If you're not listening to God's Word, if you're not opening the Scriptures, if you're not hearing sound preaching of His Word, you're starving yourself, you're starving your faith, and you're going to struggle in the Christian walk. You can't do this without the strength of God, and it comes from His Word. If the Lord Jesus needed to depend on the Word of God, so do you. Now, when Jesus said that man should not live by bread alone, he wasn't disparaging eating food. Um, obviously, that's why he said man should not live by bread alone. Don't, don't just have food. He was simply saying that bread alone can't fully satisfy humanity. St. Augustine put it this way. You've probably heard this famous quote by St. Augustine. I think it's around 300 AD. Um, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. It reminds me of a chorus of another song, of a song, sorry, by a band called Plum. They're a Christian band, and you may have heard it. The song's called God Shape Hole. Um, and the chorus goes, I'm not going to sing it, sorry. There's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and the restless soul is searching. There's a God-shaped hole in all of us, and it's a void that only He can fill. And that's so true. Some of you might feel lost this morning. Some of you might feel empty this morning. But unless you turn to the Lord Jesus for that filling, for that strength, you're going to remain empty and you're going to remain lost. Because remember, He is the vine. We're just the branches. Unless we abide in Him and He in us, we can't bear fruit. For apart from Him, it says in John 15, we can do nothing. So the Word of God is our source of strength and it's also our refuge in times of trial. And... The reason that is, is because unlike Satan, God doesn't tell lies. We know that from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, that it's actually impossible for God to lie. However, in contrast, Jesus describes Satan in John 8, verse 44, and he says, The devil was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So I guess the question I want to I start by thinking about is, is the Bible precious to you like it was to the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry? See, how was it that Jesus was able to accurately quote Deuteronomy 
to Satan. What was he doing in the wilderness besides praying? I believe the Lord Jesus was meditating on the scriptures. He was meditating on the book of Deuteronomy. So when the tempter came, he had an answer for him. He was able to say, it is written, and cut down all the lies of the enemy because the word of God was precious to him. So again, is the word of God precious to you like it was to our Lord? Ephesians chapter 6 talks about spiritual warfare and how we can do battle with the enemy. It says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It says to put on the full armor of God. And unfortunately, it's a whole other sermon to talk about the armor of God. But there are two aspects that I really want to focus and hone in on. And that is, we're advised in Ephesians chapter 6 to take up the shield of faith by which we can quench every fiery dart of the evil one. And what is that faith in? That faith is in the Word of God, which is described as the sword of the Spirit. So Jesus, in this instance, is holding up the shield of faith. He's believing the promises of God and quenching the fiery darts of the evil one, and he's fighting back with, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's the only way you can live the Christian life. If we go to our next slide, we're going to look at the next temptation of Jesus. Satan tries a slightly different technique. It says, The devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, the holy city is in reference to Jerusalem. And obviously, that's a a really public place. That's like saying, Jesus, jump off a building in the middle of Malulaba at peak hour. Like, do it publicly so that everyone can see your miraculous power. So again, Satan is trying to get him to prove that he's the Son of God, rather than just trusting what the Word of God says. Rather than relying on the naked Word of God, Jesus, you need to go further. You need to add to the Word of God. You need to prove to the world that you're the Son of God, so that you have confidence and so that they have confidence. And it's not a bad thing. You see, Satan often comes with a good thing, but he twists it. It's just the subtle twists we've got to be careful of. So the significance of this area is it's populated, it's public. Rather than falling to his death, Satan quotes to Jesus scripture. He actually quotes to him Psalm 91, two verses from Psalm 91. But the difference is when Satan quotes scripture, he quotes it with a different intent. He quotes it out of its context. And um, we need to be careful of this because this is a common technique of Satan today. He manipulates the text to again draw us away from the Word of God and to draw us away from dependence on God. Had Jesus done this, he would have taken his dependence away from God. You see, he would have gone outside of the will of God to try to establish his own righteousness, which is where the Jews failed with the written Word. Now, I used to be part of a cult If I say this story now, it'll wake everyone up. You can look it up. It's pretty exciting. It's called v-end.com. I think the guy's in jail still for tax um, evasion. But uh, he claimed he was one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, and he used lots of scriptures to make his point. And at the time, he was very charismatic as a speaker. He was very bold. And I thought, wow, maybe this guy has hidden knowledge, you know, some hidden truth from the Bible that my local pastor's missing out on. And everyone's ignorant. If only they would keep the Sabbath and if only they would keep the feast days, maybe they could go to heaven like us righteous people. Be very careful 
of those who come to you as sheep but are actually inwardly ravenous wolves. That was the warning of the Lord Jesus. False prophets will ar arise and deceive many. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13, Paul warns of false apostles, apostles, deceitful workers, who transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, why is it that so many people are deceived by Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and those who claim to be apostles and claim to work miracles but teach a different gospel? It's because they're quoting scripture. It sounds good. It sounds right. But they aren't like the Bereans to search the scriptures diligently to see if these things are true. You see, Paul came a group, across a group of people who even when he preached the gospel to them, they were diligent enough to go back away and to actually search the scriptures for themselves to find out if what he was saying was true. And hopefully, if we're all reading our Bibles on a daily basis, if I say something really bizarre and odd, you're going to go back to your word and go, hey, I don't think you took that verse in context. Now, hopefully I don't ever lead you astray because I'm here to try to help you straighten things out. But, but even the Apostle Paul was okay with people testing his teachings. So it'd be foolish of you not to test these things, not to read the passages in their full context. Now, one of the main safety structures that God has set up in your life is your pastors and your leaders um, in, in the local church that you attend. Uh, if someone comes to you with some strange doctrine or some strange teaching, or maybe you've been online and you found some wonderful thing you've never heard preached on a Sunday, and it's from the Bible, God has designed the church to be a safety net for you, to protect you, so that people you trust, who you know are walking in the Spirit, who you know hear from God, who you can examine the fruit of their life. Jesus said when it came to false apostles and false teachers that you will know them by their fruit. So I hope that you can see the love of God in my heart. I hope you can see it in Darren's heart and Leanne's heart and the other leadership of this church. Our heart for you is that you grow closer to God. We're not here for your money. We're not here for your entertainment. We're here because we want you to know Christ and we want you to be with us at the banquet that we're going to experience in heaven with the Lord Jesus when he comes again. That's our goal. Our motive is to serve him. I'm just a servant. That's why I don't like claps when I come on stage. I know that people like to honor people who come to speak and stuff, and I get that, but I want us to be clapping the Lord Jesus. Let's rejoice in him now. Let's give him thanks. We praise you, Lord. We give you thanks that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords and worthy of all our worship, all of our adoration. We thank you, Lord. You're our mighty God. You're our mighty Savior. It's not about the charismatic speaker. It's not about the pretty boy wearing tight jeans or any of that. I've been to plenty of churches like that. I've even had issues of covetousness. I thought, if only I could speak as well as that guy. <laughs> it's the dryer. <laughs> now, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul was uh, farewelling the pastors of Ephesus. He got them together in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and he warned them. He said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, I, um, I had a call from a friend recently and uh, he was struggling with some temptation. And he was asking me for advice and he wanted to pray with me. And I only had two pieces of advice for him. 
I said, you need to stay close to the shepherd and you need to stay in the flock. That is the safest position for a sheep. I said, a wolf is going to seek to isolate you from your brothers and sisters in Christ and it's going to seek to get you away from the shepherd. Why? Because the shepherd would whack him. Like if you remember um, the story of David, before David took out Goliath, he used to be a, a keeper of sheep and he says that he would grab an animal by the beard and strike it if it tried to kill one of his animals. He was a faithful shepherd that looked after his animals and cared for them. And so our Lord Jesus, if we're staying close to him, he is a faithful shepherd and he will protect the sheep. And if you're among the sheep, you're not isolated. You know, when you're feeling vulnerable and weak, come among the sheep. If you don't feel like coming to church because you're tired or exhausted or don't feel about or like being around people, that's probably the time you should be coming to church and hanging out with people because you need your brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage you, to give you hope, to turn your mind off of the troubles of this world and back onto Christ. So again, Satan quoted Psalm 91 and Jesus rebuts it again from another passage in Deuteronomy. He says, it is written. Now, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, Although he physically wasn't thrown off a building um, and angels, you know, picked him up off the ground so he didn't dash his foot on a stone, you'd be, you might be interested to know that this, this um, Psalm 91 was actually fulfilled in his life uh, in Luke chapter 4. You see, Jesus was speaking to the Jews um, on that occasion in Luke chapter 4, and the Jews became so hostile and angry at his teachings because he mentioned that God wants to bless the Gentiles too. And they were so zealous for their law and so zealous that they were the chosen people of God that they were so angry they rose up to throw him off a mountain, to throw him off a hill. So in Luke chapter 4 verse 28 it says, so all, the, all those in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath and they rose up to thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them Jesus went his way. So you have this angry mob that's dragged him to the top of a cliff and is about to throw him off the cliff. And the only, the only information we get is, passing through him, passing through the midst of them, Jesus went on his way. How is that? Well, I believe it's no different from when Elisha was surrounded by a physical arm and he said, no, no, those who are with us is greater than those who are with them. And behold, the sky was the army of the Lord and camped around. And Elisha prayed, Lord, strike them with blindness. And he walked straight up to the army and said, who do you seek? And he led them away from that place where they were going to capture him. And so in a like manner, I believe angels opened this crowd for Jesus so that he could walk straight through them. And they completely missed throwing him off the cliff. His foot would not dash against a stone. That was the promise. Now let's take a look at the last temptation that Jesus faced. It says, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Let's address a few elephants in the room. So how is it that Satan was able to show Jesus all the kingdoms of the world from a high mountain? Like, the next question you probably should be asking is, how is it that... Um, Satan got him onto a high mountain in the first place. Are you telling me that Jesus went for like a day's journey up a mountain with Satan? That doesn't sound like a good idea. I don't think Jesus just physically walked up a mountain with Satan because Satan said, hey, let me show you something at the top of this mountain. 
The second question we should be asking is, um, how did Satan offer all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus? I mean, didn't Jesus create the world? That's what we learn in John chapter 1, that all the world was created through him and for him. So doesn't it belong to him already? So now, when we get stuck with difficult passages like this, we need to look to other scriptures to get clarity. And in this case, our clarity will come from the parallel account we found in Luke chapter 4. So if we turn to Luke chapter 4, um, yeah, the next slide, it's the same story, uh, but Luke adds a few extra details that gives us a bit more clarity of the situation. So it says, the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So if you'd ask me what I think happened, I think they were supernaturally brought to the top of a mountain and then Jesus received a vision of all the kingdoms and all the pleasures that could be his if only he would bow down and worship him. Now from, uh, from Luke's account, we also see Satan saying, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whoever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. Sounds kind of similar to rock stars who sell their soul to the devil so that they can have fame and fortune. I don't think Jesus was a rock star, though. He was a stonemason, so, I mean... I'm becoming a dad soon. I'm practicing. Now, uh, Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, all the dads say I need some practice. All right, cool. The problem is my kids aren't going to understand my jokes because I'm too weird. All right, all right, all right. So he offers, Satan offers authority over the earth rather than ownership. You see, God the Creator owns the world, but at this time Satan had authority over it. Um, so the question again we should ask is who gave Satan this kind of authority? Was it God? Did God give Satan authority over the earth? I think if, um, yeah, someone said Adam, good. Uh, you read my notes, you cheated. Um, <laughs> Now, uh, when Adam and Eve were created by God in the Garden of Eden, they were entrusted with stewardship. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth. And so you see, God entrusted mankind with stewardship of the earth. We were created according to his likeness, and God... And his likeness is a ruler. And so he distributed that authority to us so that we could rule as sort of like little rulers. Now, when Adam and Eve yielded to the voice of Satan by disobeying God and eating from the forbidden tree, they surrendered that authority to Satan. So, for example, when we read in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So when Adam and Eve chose to hear the voice of Satan and submit to the voice of Satan, they were basically coming under the authority of Satan. And um, their stewardship was marred by now who the Bible describes as the God of this world or the prince of the power of the air that now works in the sons of disobedience. These are scriptures to describe the authority that Satan has, that he's at work amongst unbelievers who have not yet been connected to Jesus Christ. So, um, in John, it's, it's important to see that Satan doesn't have full authority. It's still a limited authority. So, for example, in John chapter 10, verse 18, 
Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So we see that Satan couldn't actually kill Jesus when Satan wanted to kill Jesus. Jesus actually laid his life down freely as a sacrifice for us. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it says that Jesus shared in our flesh and blood, that is that he became human. Uh, It says that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus died on a cross to redeem us from the curse of the law, from the curse of sin, and from the curse of death. And isn't this good news? We can have everlasting life, and you can know it this morning. You don't have to wait till you die to see him face to face. The moment you trust and look to the Lord Jesus for your salvation, you are reconciled to God and you have a place reserved for you um, in his kingdom, his coming kingdom. And that's good news. We're going to live forever. Death cannot hold us down. Death no longer has the same sting for a believer because we have a heavenly hope. Now, how is this temptation attractive to Jesus? Like, couldn't he just say, hey, I don't think this is a good idea? You see, there's probably an even greater temptation was coming in the life of Jesus, and you would know this full well. The suffering that Jesus faced in the Garden of Eden when he was praying all night uh, because he knew what it would be like to be made sin on behalf of the world. He knew what it would be like to suffer at the hands of men, to be nailed to the cross that was made of wood that he created, to be mocked by mouths and languages that he created, Like he humbled himself and he willingly became our sacrifice. And so Satan was offering him the very thing he came to get, but he was offering him a different way than God would offer. You see, in order for Jesus to do this legitimately, he needed to go to the cross to defeat death, to defeat the rule of Satan, and to um, guarantee our everlasting life. But Satan was saying, hey, you can skip the cross I'll give it to you now freely, if only you will worship me. So what we learn from this with the temptations of Jesus is that he's often going to come to us with a good thing, but not in God's timing and not in God's way. So for example, he might tempt a young person by saying, hey, why don't you sleep with your partner? Like you can get married in the future. You love each other. You know, he might come with that kind of language. And sex is a good thing, you see, but it's not good outside of God's intended purpose. Out of, uh, out of his plan for protecting you by having it in a loving, committed relationship till death do us part. Or maybe Satan will say to you, why don't you lie to your boss now so that you can get that promotion? You know, it's just one little lie. You know, if you earn more money, you'll be able to support your family. You know, you'll be able to love your family better if you have more money. Just, just tell one lie. These are the subtle deceptions of Satan. He wants to offer you something good, but not God's way. So again, Jesus did not, didn't rely on his own strength and willpower. He quotes Deuteronomy again. So this is why I think he was meditating on Deuteronomy this whole time, because he's able to quote it. And he says to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So he yielded to the word of God. He yielded to, to God's word rather than um, yielding to the voice of Satan. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But it does start with submit to God. You can't resist the devil and he'll flee from you as a standalone. Again, reading in context, the first part of the verse says, submit to God, then you'll resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, once Jesus completed his earthly mission, I've mentioned it already, 
he finishes in the Gospels by saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So he did receive authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. He has disarmed principalities and powers. He's disarmed the accuser. The accuser comes to you and says, you're guilty. You can say, paid for by the blood of Jesus. You can say, clean because of the life of Jesus. You can stand before God and say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him. I got halfway through this sermon and I realized I should probably just write a book because there was so much content that I couldn't cover. Let's, um, let's just think about a closing thought. If you're struggling with temptations this morning, I want you to know that you can look to the Lord Jesus for your strength. That's why Paul always says, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You see, because Jesus overcame, he was in in his very weakest point in life, and yet he still overcame. We can have absolute confidence that when we turn to him, he can give us strength in place of our weaknesses. And it's his strength not our own. Now, I, um, I went to work this week and uh, I'm working with someone at the moment that I'm really trying to build a, a good relationship with because I'm sharing with them about Jesus. And I got up one morning and I was feeling like absolute garbage. Like I must have had just a really bad night's sleep. I was on my second coffee and coffee couldn't save me. <laughs> but man should not live by coffee alone. <laughs> come on, dads. Come on. Um, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I didn't want to go to work and be around this person because I didn't want them to think that Jesus was like me. Because I was grumpy and irritable, and I was thinking, man, I just know I'm going to snap at someone. I'm going to be sarcastic. I'm going to be rude. Um, And I'm trying to tell this person who Jesus is and that I'm a follower of Jesus, and yet I'm sarcastic and rude and grumpy. And so I was like, man, I don't want to misrepresent Jesus here. And that was all the unbelief speaking. Then I remembered the word of God. And I remembered this story because I was preparing for the sermon. I'm like, well, Jesus overcame when he was probably feeling grumpy. Jesus overcame by the word of God. And so I looked to Jesus and I just said a simple prayer. I'm like, Lord Jesus, you overcame in the wilderness. And instantly, I just had this strength and confidence to know that even though my body was weary, I didn't have to snap at people. I didn't have to be rude. I didn't have to gossip because the Lord Jesus gave me his strength because I was standing by faith in the word of God. And so I just want to encourage you that you can be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And you don't have to be overcome by Satan. You don't have to be deceived by the liar. The Lord Jesus is alive and well, and he's waiting for you to come to him. And he promises if you do come to him that he'll give you everlasting life. And Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who now lives, but Christ lives in me. And that's the good news. I'd just like to welcome the worship team back on stage. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with perhaps a sin that's been troubling you for maybe a long period of time, or you just feel distant from God, Or maybe you don't even know the Lord. Maybe you don't know that your sins have been forgiven. I'd invite you and the prayer team to come forward. And um, we'd be happy to pray for you as we sing this last song. We'd be happy to talk to you about any struggles you're facing. Or 
If you're being deceived by some creepy cult, come and see me afterwards and I'd love to have a chat. We can talk about the Word of God in context and we can let the Word of God be your strength and instruction. So if you'd like to come forward, I'll be at the front and I'm sure other people, the prayer team. Thank you.